Welcome, everyone, to Commentaries from the Edge. This is Karen Goldberg, and here's what's coming up. I'm so pleased and honored to have Stephen Siegel be part of our program today. Dr. Siegel is a researcher on the brain and has extensive years of opportunities to do that type of work, and that will be the centerpiece of our discussion today. Dr. Siegel has many professional titles. I will mention two of them. The first one is the University of Southern California Chair of Psychiatry in the School of Medicine here in Los Angeles and Chief Mental Health and Wellness Officer for Keck Medicine. So welcome, Dr. Siegel. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. And please add some of your other professional titles. Thank, thank you for having me on the show this evening. And um, I'd prefer to forego the titles and get right into the meat of the conversation. All right. Okay. Well, I'm only wanting to make sure our listeners realize that mm -hmm. they're talking to a very distinguished and accomplished person. Um, and I know many years that you've spent on the brain. So, you know, I was thinking about what it is about the brain. I think in the way the brain frightens people because uh, when you think about all the different kinds of discoveries and research people do, somehow the subject of the brain is not really that common of topic in which people talk about. And, you know, I think it's kind of like, you know, our, we have expressions like, uh, we'll use your brain, but I wonder if people really um, imagine what they're saying when they say that. So, you know, we, we, you and I have kind of talked about that idea that somehow the brain is still this amazing frontier, like much more of a frontier in some ways than our space travel is, wouldn't you say? I, I, I agree. And to just emphasize that, there's a level of complexity for how a human brain or, or really any brain works that almost defies our ability to comprehend even a single neuron, the, the kind of active cell or one of the kinds of active cells in a brain. If you just took that one cell, it is so incredibly complex that you know, no one could ever fully understand how the one cell works, let alone how it works with billions of other cells in these complex networks that form consciousness and thought and perception. Is it, do you think it's, it's the complexity, the challenge of that, that, that has attracted you to do this, to, to want to research something that is so complex? It started with that complexity and the wonder around being able to investigate things that that seemed beyond our ken. Mm -hmm. But later, when I um, first I I had pursued a, a PhD, I wanted to be a basic scientist or a discovery scientist. But after becoming a physician as well, all of that complexity and the wonder of discovery really took took a whole new direction and a whole new meaning 
in becoming the kind of doctor that works with people who have brain disorders and seeing how it brain disorders like schizophrenia, which is the disorder I most most work with, um, how that could devastate lives and, and even whole families, and then realizing how far we were from being able to really understand it uh, became a, a, a motivating factor to study it and try to make a, a difference. That's wonderful. That's, that's a great reason for wanting to uh, throw yourself into a field. So what would you say, I, given you've done this research now for a while, what are some of the, let, let's say, uh, what are some of the most significant understandings that you feel now we, we realize about the brain that maybe before your research we didn't know? So I think there have been, well, far too many to go into, but I'll just highlight a few. At one extreme, there's now, in some ways, the ability to decode and understand the language that brains and, and neural systems use. As examples of this, you can now see what what looks like science fiction where neuroscientists and neurosurgeons and neurologists are able to implant electrodes, arrays of electrodes in people's brains, and people can now move limbs with thought, you know, artificial limbs. And I think even 20 years ago, that, we, we would just never have imagined that we could come to the point where awesome. someone was decoding how how brains do that um, so I think at, at another extreme when I look at the psychiatric front we're now learning that events very early in life can change the way brains work and and work for the rest of your life and so it's not damage. It's not that there's a, an, a lesion and therefore it doesn't work. That would be rather simple. Instead, we're learning that early experiences can change how the cells work, what they do, the way that they apply um, network dynamics or the gain in the system. And that there may be ways to undo that. So when you're saying ways to undo that, are, are you, are you uh, imagining the same type of idea of decoding the brain? Or is there some other ways that you're thinking of? So in a, in a way, it's, it's decoding, not decoding the electrical activity which is how the former example works, but instead decoding the way the brain chemically and molecularly. But in short, we know that 
early life experiences can alter how networks function and that changes your whole life trajectory. That's yeah, that's incredible understanding. And and at the same time, it's a kind of uh, it's an awesome thing to contemplate because um, once we're adults, of course, we can't change what happened in those early years unless what you're saying that they're by understanding it more we can find better ways to help people who let's say have had very adverse experiences in their childhood yes and in the past that was largely done through therapies, psychotherapy, which is still very effective, but it's teaching people how to live with the brain they have, so to speak. Where I see us going now is that we can understand down to a a level of which proteins are made, which signals are sent, and be able to we actually could in some ways almost put your brain back the way it was so you could adapted to the new brain, but because you put it back the way it was before that experience. That's just amazing. That that sounds uh, science fiction-like also. I think think part of the fear that when I'm when you're talking about this that I think some people feel and why um, you know there's a common conversation about the brain is because it seems like what you're saying that people might be afraid of having their brain changed not sure when you say going back to what Hmm. was before the adverse experience that or trauma that, that the person had that affected their brain in a negative way. Perhaps people are not sure what that means about their brain going back. So I think I can, and perhaps use a, a, a simple analogy that helps me understand it a little better. Many of your listeners may be more sophisticated, but at, at a simple level for me, I'm losing, I think, Dr. Siegel, uh, the, the mic is a little bit, was a little garbled there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to stay still and, and have good signal, but I, I understand I'm having the same issue. Okay. Is this any better? Yes, this is perfect. Okay, I'll tr- I'll try not to move. Yes, that that's probably what it is. So, you can think of it as even within a single cell, there's a mechanism for that cell to have a bit of an amplifier. Signals come in; they are amplified and moved forward. 
And for some of the stress pathways, how your brain processes stress, as an example, early life experiences can turn up that that amplifier. It's like somebody turned the knob there. Yes, I see what you mean. And so as you go through life, even relatively small events can be amplified in their impact on your nervous system. What I'm suggesting is that as we learn how to control the amp, the gain, we can turn that back down. And so now you experience stress and inputs in a more normal um, a normal normal function. So a small amount in, a small amount forward instead of that increased amplification. Which reminds me of, you know, sometimes someone might uh, have what, what seems to other people a very small event happen as you're talking about that. And they have such a huge reaction to it that people can't understand why they're responding so so strongly to something that seems minor. So that's that's the kind of thing you're talking about that where that something has been tapped inside of their brain in that small that small stressor, what seems to be a small stressor but isn't to them. And in this case you're using those are real real examples and I'm also using it as an analogy so that the impact of those things on your brain. So for example, if we look at normal aging and all of the things that impact normal aging and normal cognitive decline in later life, these early life experiences can turn up the volume on those and accelerate your late life for example, cognitive decline. And so what I'm suggesting is that if we can really learn what changed after someone goes through an adverse event and then go in and pharmacologically or electrically turn it back down, then you could set them up to have a a more a more positive life trajectory and, for example, not have as much cognitive decline later in life. You found, I know you found in working with schizophrenics, as you mentioned, people who, who have schizophrenic episodes that people who are willing to accept medication that, that does affect the, the brain organization and, and their impact on the cells and those people who will not accept the medication. So I, I lost a little bit of what you, you said there because of the, um, the, the sound quality. Oh, so, okay. Well, um, I'm sorry, could you say that again? Yes, of course. Well, basically, I was saying that you have talked about the difference between uh, 
working with schizophrenia with people who have schizophrenia that that the difference between those who are taking some medication that can interrupt the kinds of brain messages that you're talking about and those who refuse medication and the impact it has on the functioning of their life. So that is absolutely true. And for people who have schizophrenia, we don't, we don't have anywhere near a full understanding of what's changed. We do, however, have a host of medications that are, are just um, hugely helpful. And so one of the great challenges is just taking the medicine. And they are not perfect, and they don't do everything for everyone. But these are among the most effective medicines we have, really, in, in all of medicine, in taking someone from a state that is you know, very, very impaired with a lot of suffering and bringing them back much closer to the life they should have had without the illness. So what is the, I don't know if you can explain it in ways that uh, understanding to a lay audience and to a lay person like myself, but what is it that the medication does to the brain that, that that can happen? You know, at a, at a deep level, the answer is, I don't know, but at a superficial level, we can at least start with what we know the medicines do and then the early impacts that that has on neural systems. So all medicines for schizophrenia, whether they're old or new, regardless of what uh, they're called, all of them bind to and block a particular kind of receptor called the dopamine type two receptor. So it's a receptor in the brain that's a receptor means it's a protein on a cell surface. This chemical in our bodies called dopamine normally binds that receptor and it sends a signal from one cell to another. So dopamine is like a messenger. You block the messenger, this dopamine receptor, and that receptor is linked inside the cell to a cascade of events that regulate gene transcription. So we all have our code of genes. That's sort of the story of, of that we're written as. But in every cell, you read different parts of the story. You, that's called transcribe them. You transcribe the genes into proteins. And when you block dopamine type 2 receptors, Ultimately, you change which parts of that genes of, of those genes are read and turned on, and you alter how that cell works. And we also know that the activity of a cell impacts how the next cell in its chain also regulates its proteins. So you can think of it like. One, one cell hands a message to the next. We block part of that message. Now that next cell changes 
and so forth and so on. And as I mentioned earlier, there's literally billions of connections. And so over the course of several months, so the meds take months to work, over the course of several months, by blocking this dopamine type 2 receptor, we are, for all intents and purposes, rewiring that brain, setting up its connections and the strength of those connections to more accurately mimic what that person was before they got sick. And that's important. We're not turning them into someone else. We're not altering who they are supposed to be. <laughs> Use of antipsychotic medications is restorative. It is allowing your brain to go back to the state it was in before you got sick. Which is an important point, which is why some you know, some people are very afraid of psychomedications and often sometimes then make that decision not to take any. But I think really also, you know, what's so important is particularly in understanding how the brain forms as, you know, from the time we're born, as we go through life, and then what's happening, let's say, but, but between the time of 15 to 20 and what that means that you made with marijuana, with which is more commonly called cannabis now. But I think that's very little, there's very little understanding of that connection between, or there, there has ever been any connection found between marijuana, cannabis, and schizophrenia. I think that's really an important development that you have there. Yeah, so this is this is not work that I've done myself, but it's it's work that is widely accepted and, and widely understood from others in the field. And what they've found is that um, exposure to marijuana or cannabis before the age of approximately twenty-two or twenty-three. So, if you're exposed to marijuana before for your early 20s, there is a large increase in the incidence of schizophrenia. And, and by large, it, it's, you know, less, less than a, uh, a percent, but there's nothing else we have that's, that's similar. So of all the things we know that can increase one's risk of schizophrenia, Exposure to marijuana before the age of 20 or 21 is probably the most impactful. And that's something that's really not been part of the popular conversation around legalization. Right. It is actually not a particularly safe substance, especially for adolescents. In fact, the conversation is often about that it's one of the uh, it's one of the drugs that, you know, m people might take from off the street who uh, won't know that, in fact, it's actually not safe, but it's considered, you know, kind of a mild, a mild drug. In this case, the consequences would not be mild for many people. Exactly. So it's, it seems like it's a message that 
definitely needs to be get out there. And as you said, in terms of discussing the idea of legalization, which is more than an idea now, right? It's happened. Mm-hmm. But at least the knowledge, people need the knowledge. Then they can make a decision. Yes. And and again, you know, it's 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 hard to get access to really high quality information. And I would encourage listeners, you know, not to get this kind of information only by, you know, reading posts and things, but, you know, you can access the actual scientific literature, something called peer reviewed, which means that it's been vetted by, by colleagues who are knowledgeable in this area. And if you look at a peer reviewed publication, it means it's been vetted to a very high level for the exactly. veracity of that information. And certainly, you know, people have so much access to information now through various many, many ways. So, yes, that, that, that's a really important uh, advice for people to do. And then, right, become, become because the, the knowledge is power and to become more aware Indeed, this this connection. So I think also, you know, when you're mentioning about uh, cognitive abilities, and by that, you know, we mean memory, how you might deal with anxiety or depression, or how it might affect you, or uh, you know, your attention, your ability to be focused. We haven't mentioned yet the stress that all of us are under with the pandemic and with what it's done to so many lives, so many families, so many, so many children. Um, And I think, you know, we really don't know yet, right? What the impact is gonna be on on this kind of uh, very extended stress that we've all been under. Dr. Siegel, we can just say we're back again like a commercial break. Okay. We'll continue. We have, I think we've got another five minutes and um, we were just talking about the impact of the pandemic. And as you were mentioning, not really understanding yet uh, what the impact may be and how its trajectory might hit various many different people in different ways, also related to their early childhood and how it might, their, the experiences might affect how they respond to the, a pandemic way of life like this. So as, as, you, as you so aptly said, where we are in the pandemic will influence how it impacts us, meaning where we are in life, where we are in an experience, But we do know from many years of research that high stress environments lead to um, brain changes that decrease your ability to down, down regulate stress. So the very parts of the brain that we use to, um, as a negative feedback loop to decrease our response to stress are themselves negatively impacted by stress. So the more stress you're under, the harder it is to deal with stress. And they're the same parts of your brain that are critical for memory. And so there is this 
um, unfortunate constellation that being in very high stress environments makes it harder to downregulate your stress response and also negatively impacts your cognitive capacity. That's, yeah. So that can, that has tremendous implications on so many levels because um, we could say, you know, for children whose brain is just developing and thinking of all the young people in the school system that are living through this pandemic and living with adults who are under so much different stress from the pandemic, how much harder it must be for them to have uh, their memory available to them to learn, to absorb new subjects, new fields, right? New information. Well, and, you know, those, those young children still have quite a lot of cognitive capacity left. You know, they're still very malleable and they'll still have lots of other life experiences that hopefully will, will work in the other direction, which will be positive. Um, but, but this will leave a mark. And it's up to us as a society to recognize that this really is a challenging experience for everyone. And we have to, I think we have to recognize that and respond to it lest um, we suffer the consequences of having lived through this, this pandemic without providing appropriate countermeasures to help people come back to the life they're supposed to have. And what sort of measures are you thinking of? So I think that we're going to have to recognize that um, people will, will need to really learn coping skills because they may overreact to stress. So they have to learn how to regulate their own stress and move their stress responses in the in the lower direction so learning how to not overreact may become more important than ever mm-hmm. recognizing that as you said that wasn't the best learning environment we may need to put a bit more attention into making sure that children learn last year's curriculum as well as this year's curriculum and being intentional about you can't just assume that because time passed that they absorbed the same amount of information that people two years ago would have. And I think it's also recognizing that there will likely be a wave of increased mental duress and mental illness. And we're going to need to ramp up our, our society's capacity to address that. Right now, we have a, a very poorly resourced mental health system, grossly under-resourced relative to all other forms of what medicine. what the need is, yes. And so I, I think we're going to have to say, you know, it's more important than, than ever. I think we're going to have to treat mental illness like a generation before us treated cancer. If we would give the same degree of energy now to treating mental wellness and mental illness to a generation that has gone through the pandemic, 
as we put into cancer, we would be able to help everyone do much better in life. And so it's, it's a call to action to re, reimagine how we want to spend our resources and where we want to put our energy. If, I, if there was one thing that I would like us to be able to do, it would be to learn how to modulate the brain so that we could turn things up, turn them down, and people could really um, exert control over their, their thoughts and their actions and not have not control other people's. I mean, to really have the tools for people to be able to control their own thoughts and actions and live in a way that, that they want to, unencumbered by painful emotions and painful experiences like those that people with schizophrenia experience. Well, I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful wish. And I hope that it does happen. And I hope for our, for our children and grandchildren's sake for the future, that would be an amazing, wonderful improvement on, on human life. So thank you, Dr. Siegel, for all the work that you're doing to improve many of our lives and to save some lives. So thank you so much again for being with me today. Thank you for doing this podcast and thank you for having me on it. Good night. Good night.